0: Caroline's going to come and read to us the first uh, passage for our new series in Mark chapter 14 to 16. Thanks, Caroline.
1: So, uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said. the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, "'Why this waste of perfume? "'It could have been sold for more than a year's wages "'and the money given to the poor, "'and they rebuked her harshly. "'Leave her alone,' said Jesus. "'Why are you bothering her? "'She has done a beautiful thing to me. "'The poor you will always have with you, "'and you can help them any time you want, "'but you will not always have me. "'She did what she could,' She poured the perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me, sorry, to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over.
0: Thanks very much, Caroline. If you keep that passage open and let's pray together before we look at God's word. Father in heaven, as we begin this new series and as we spend the next few weeks in these last few chapters of Mark's gospel, we thank you for the opportunity it is to walk with the Lord Jesus to the hour of his death. As we do, help us to marvel all the more at what he achieved for us at the cross. And as we do, Lord, we, we long for our heart's response to be one of devotion, as we see in this passage before us. So please be at work in our hearts by your spirit. To that end this morning, we pray. Amen. I wonder if I was asked you to complete the phrase here on the screen. What would you say? Cometh The hour, dot, dot, dot. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. It's a phrase that's used quite a lot in the sporting press and the sporting media these days. In fact, back in 2002, when David Beckham almost single-handedly took England to the World Cup finals, Adidas produced this poster of David Beckham that you'd have seen smiling down on you. If you'd made your way along the M6 via Warsaw, hanging off the old Fort Dunlop building, a 20-meter-wide head of David Beckham with a slogan next to it, cometh the hour, leaving you to fill in the blanks, cometh the man. You see, that was a pretty significant moment if you were an English football fan. But I think in the whole context of world history, it's fair to say that was actually a pretty insignificant moment that will be remembered by fairly few people. Our new series that we're beginning in these mornings, it's going to take us up to Easter and just beyond. We've called The Hour Has Come, or Cometh the Hour. Because in Mark's gospel, and indeed all the other gospel accounts, there is an hour in view. For which the Lord Jesus came to this world an hour of huge significance. An hour that doesn't just have implications for a few people at a specific point in time, but an hour that has eternal implications for all people from all history. Just fast forward if you would to Mark chapter 14 verse 41 and 42, where we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just moments before his arrest. He's called his friends, his disciples to keep watch and to pray. And they've failed on both accounts. And so we read in verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You see, the hour in view is, of course, the hour of Jesus' death. It is the reason he came to this world, the reason God's Son left heaven. Think back over these previous weeks, the eternal God that we've been thinking about the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, glorious, magnificent creator, all-loving, all-holy, came to this world for this very hour to live and to walk to the cross and to die for sinners like me and you. And over the next few weeks, we have the privilege of walking with the Lord Jesus to this climactic hour, the hour of his death. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Back in chapter 11, just to give you a little bit of context for today's passage, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem a week before his death. And since that moment, the tension has been building, and indeed the opposition to Jesus has been building, especially among the leaders of Israel. Have a look back in chapter 11, verse 18. It's on the screen. On the back of Jesus' teaching, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. It is an opposition that continues through chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. And it's still there this morning at the beginning of our passage in verse 1 and 2. Just have a look down. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. It's dark, isn't it? It is spiritually dark in verse 1 and 2. The leaders of Israel, who were meant to be leading the people towards a Messiah, at that very point in time, were planning to have him killed. They're scheming, and they're plotting, and there's just one piece of the jigsaw in their plan that still needs to fall into place. Jump down to verse 10, because here the jigsaw is complete for these leaders. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest. This is one of Jesus' own, who has walked with him for three years, and he went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over it is dark in verse 1 and 2 as the leaders plot to have jesus killed and if anything it gets even darker in verse 10 and 11 as one of jesus's own becomes the key man the final piece in this horrid plot to have the lord jesus killed but you see sandwiched between these two dark bookends is the light and the warmth of verses three to nine. It is a story of pure devotion to Jesus, a story of untempered love and acts that Jesus himself calls a beautiful thing in verse six. You see, it is a display of devotion that is set in complete contrast to the darkness and the hatred and the betrayal that surrounds it. And so before we even come to look at the content and the detail of this story, the context forces us to ask ourselves a question. Who are we most like in this story? Are we like the woman in verse 3 who is overflowing with a devotion to Jesus? Or are we more like Judas in verse 10? Who on the surface looked the part, but in reality was more devoted to his money than his savior. What does loyalty to Jesus really look like? What does devotion to Christ really look like in life? You see, I think this story splits down pretty nicely into three scenes. In scene number one, there is a focus on the woman in verse three. In scene number two, the attention turns to the guests that were also with Jesus at this meal in verse four and five. And then finally, scene three, the attention turns to Jesus himself in verse six through to verse nine. But first I want us to think about the woman in verse 3 who is held up as a picture of devotion to Jesus Have a look down with me at verse 3 While he was in Bethany Reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Bethany is a little village a couple of miles outside Jerusalem. It seems to be the place where Jesus retreated to get away from the crowds that were building for this Passover week in Jerusalem. And on this occasion, he retreats to the home of a man called Simon the leper. And at the beginning, it's nothing different. To it's a normal meal with Jesus. Until, enter stage left, a woman... Breaks up the normal flow of this meal. And she comes in carrying this expensive jar of perfume. And we learn in verse 3 that this container is made of alabaster. Which is a very fragile material. It's not something you'd have normally carried around in your handbag with you. It's something that would have been stashed safely away at home. And in the container we read that the content was very precious this perfume that is made of pure nard now i don't pretend to be an expert in the world of perfume which my hi- my wife Han will probably testify to but i've done my research in this area and this nard this substance is a substance that comes from the indian mountains point being it's not local to jerusalem it was something that was very difficult to get your hands on and therefore was a very precious commodity And therefore, the cost, we learn, of the contents of this jar was hugely significant. In fact, down in verse 5, we learn that it could have been sold for more than a year's wages. £20,000 worth of perfume poured out on the head of Jesus. You see, we're not talking about something that could have been picked up at duty-free, on the way back from your holidays, we're talking about what was most likely this woman's heirloom. You see, there was no such thing as standard life pension schemes in those days. People's personal and financial security was tied up in physical assets that were passed down from one generation to the next, and this was hers. You, so you see, in this action of pouring out this perfume, she wasn't just pouring out money upon Jesus. She was pouring out her future. It was a giving up of her own personal security for a sake of her devotion to Jesus. And you see in verse 3, it didn't just dribble out. She smashed open this jar and poured it out in a gesture of complete abandonment. And that word pour that you see there in verse 3 its the same word used in Acts chapter 2 of God pouring out his spirit on all people. You see, Jesus was literally deluged in devotion from this unnamed woman. So let me ask you the question that's coming up here on the screen. Is it possible for you to be over the top? In your devotion to Jesus. Is it? Is it possible to pour out too much now. In this life. For the sake of Christ. And of course the answer to that question is no. (laughs) As we sung already this morning. Were the whole realm of nature mine. Everything in all creation. It were an offering far too small love so amazing love so divine it demands my soul my life my all love so amazing where the lord jesus christ poured out his life for us on the cross it demands my soul my life my all it demands all of me you see it is impossible For us to be over the top in our devotion to Jesus, whatever the world may say. You see, this woman is held before us as a picture of devotion to Jesus. But in verse 4 and 5, the guests are now presented to us as a picture of blindness to Jesus or blindness to Christ. Have a look down verse 4 and 5, how they react. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. If the account in John chapter 12 is a parallel account with this one, then we know that it was Judas himself who was leading this indignant response. But Mark doesn't pin the blame on Judas. Verse 4, he says, you know what? They're all at it. All of them. And their response is summed up with those words there at the end of verse 4. Why this waste of perfume? A couple of drops on Jesus, that's okay. To give a bit of your life to Jesus, that's alright. But to pour it all out? Every last drop for Jesus? What a waste, say the guests at this meal. C.T. Studd, who some of you would be familiar with, was an English cricketer at the end of the 19th century. He actually played in a test match against the Aussies that led to the formation of what we now know as the Ashes. But he gave up his pretty promising international cricketing career in order to be a missionary to China, to take the good news of the gospel to China. And if you read the stories around C.T. Studd and this moment in his life, he was utterly ridiculed by his contemporaries. What a waste, they shouted. Why would you give up such a promising cricketing career to go to China, of all places, to talk about this man, Jesus? Why give it all up? What a waste, C.T. Stut. No different, is it, from the critical words that we see here spoken by the guests in verse 4. And it's no different either today, is it? The banker... Who turns down the six-figure salary in order to train for the ministry his colleagues say what a waste What are you doing? Why turn down that lucrative future? Why give it all up? For a, a rabble of 40 people that you look after every Sunday. Why would you do such thing? What a waste? But Jesus says what wonderful worship What about the dad the father? Who turns down a promotion that is before him. Why? In order to spend more time with his family, with his wife, with his children. To disciple them, to lead them to Christ, to maturity, to joy in the gospel. And his colleagues say, well why would you turn down that opportunity? What a waste. But Jesus says, what wonderful worship. What about the teenage lad? He turns down the best-looking girl in the year because she's not a Christian. And she's not going to help him in his walk with Christ. And his mates turn to him and look him and say, what are you doing? Why turn down that opportunity? What a waste. But Jesus says, what wonderful worship. What about the growing family? They've got the money and the resources to, to upgrade from a three bed to a five bed, but they choose not to. They stay in the three bed and they squeeze their children into the same rooms so they can give away money to the work of the gospel and the local church. Their neighbors say, what? Why? What a waste. Jesus says, what wonderful worship. And it's no different, is it, to the unnamed story, the unnamed woman, sorry, in this story, who pours out her all upon Christ. And the guests say, what a waste. But Jesus says, what wonderful worship. Or to use his very words there in verse six, she has done a beautiful thing to me. J.C. Ryle in his commentary summed it up brilliantly. Listen to the first line of what he says. There is no such thing as moderation when it comes to the service of Christ. It's good, isn't it? There is no such thing as moderation. It is all in for Jesus. And he goes on, if a man devotes his time and money and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they don't blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He's beside himself. He's out of his mind. He's a fanatic. He's an enthusiast. In short, they regard it as a waste. You see, we can rock up to church once a week here on a Sunday. And we can lead pretty Half-hearted lives in devotion to Jesus in the week. Worship in moderation, you might say, in J.C. Ryle's language. And no one in the world will bat an eyelid. No one. But the moment, as a church, we start making sacrifices for Jesus, pouring it all out, every last drop, holding nothing back, is the moment that the world will look at you slightly strangely, maybe to your face, maybe under your breath, and they'll say, what a waste. What a waster. Well, What does this mean for us this morning? Well, for some of us, pouring out our life in devotion to Jesus may mean significant changes in life to your career, to your family, to the way that you spend your time, to the way that you use your money. All the big decisions of life affected supremely by your devotion to the Lord Jesus that comes first. For some of us, maybe the Lord is calling you to make big changes in life for the sake of your devotion to Jesus. But at the very least, it means this, wherever you are, whatever you are doing in life right now, it means being 100% devoted to Jesus. Not a dribble of devotion, but a deluge. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, a verse that may be familiar to us, Therefore I urge you, says Paul, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of Jesus pouring out it all for you at the cross, he says, I urge you, offer your bodies, all that you are, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Could I ask you to look down at your Bibles and I'm going to give you 10 seconds to read verse 3 again. Just read verse 3 if you would. Can I ask you what you see as you read verse 3? Do you see waste or do you see worship? Because if you still see waste... In this woman's actions, then there is something that you have yet failed to grasp about the wonder and the beauty and the person and the work of Christ. Because it's not waste. When life is devoted to Jesus, it is anything but waste. It is a God-glorifying, joy-filled life that we are called to. But as you read verse 3, if you see worship in the action of this woman could I encourage you to go and do the same? Because, you see, there is no such thing as moderation when it comes to our service and our devotion to Jesus. This woman is held before us as a picture of devotion. The guests are held before us as a picture of blindness to Christ. And then as we turn our attention to what Jesus has to say in verse 6 and verse 9, he defends this woman's actions. He commends her and he says to the people listening that she has done a beautiful thing. Have a look at verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Statement, question, statement. Statement, Leave her alone. Question. Why are you bothering her? Statement. She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, whatever the world thinks about Christians giving their life for the cause of Christ, Jesus thinks wholehearted devotion is a beautiful thing. Verse 7. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me it's worth noting here that jesus isn't against the poor as some people have tried to argue he's actually quoting from deuteronomy 15 verse 11 which the full verse is there before you on the screen there will always be poor people in the land therefore i command you to be open-handed towards your fellow israelites who are poor and needy in your land You see, Jesus isn't contradicting the command of Deuteronomy 15. he's, He's bringing it to their attention. And if you walk with the Lord Jesus through the Gospels, you will see this bias that Jesus has towards the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the vulnerable. His point isn't, don't help the poor. His point is, at this crucial moment, as the shadow of the cross looms all the more over the Lord Jesus... Priority is devotion to jesus And it will always be the case Our devotion to the lord jesus is our priority above all things which will then flow out in loving action To those around us in life In verse 8 we get a, another signpost towards his death She did what she could She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial Did this woman know exactly what she was doing? Did she know in this act that she was preparing Jesus for his burial? Did she understand the events that were to come with Jesus giving his life on the cross? Did she understand what Jesus had been teaching? We don't know exactly what she grasped. But even with this partial understanding of this woman before the events of the cross and the resurrection unfold, she poured it all out for Jesus. How much more then... Should we be willing from our privileged vantage point now as we look back on the work of Christ, his wonderful sin bearing death on our behalf, his glorious resurrection to new life, his mighty ascension, his promise to return and restore this world to glory, the new creation. When our eyes have been open to that. How much more willing should we be to pour out every last drop of our lives to jesus and then the final affirmation look in verse nine truly i tell you wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world what she has done will also be told in memory of her and so it is two thousand years on in long crendon the gospel is preached And this unnamed woman is set before us as an example of what devotion to the Lord Jesus looks like. So many people that have done so much in the eyes of the world will be forgotten, erased from history, but not the actions of this one unnamed lady. And so as we begin to draw things to a close, I'd like to ask you, where do you fit in this story? As you watch the events unfold now, a little bit from the sidelines, where where do you fit? Who do you associate with in this story? Are we like Judas? Who for every appearance looked the part for those three years. But in reality, he was more devoted to his money and to his earthly belongings than he was the work of Jesus. Or are we like the guests in the story that are happy hanging out with Jesus, happy being associated with Jesus, they're dining with Jesus, yet they scoff at a life of full devotion? What a waste, they say. Is there something in us that says that, that life of full devotion to Jesus? Just a bit over the top still, isn't it, really? Is there something of the guests in us still this morning? Or are we like This woman? for whom devotion to Jesus meant far more than all her earthly treasures. C.T. Studd, who we mentioned earlier, wrote a poem in which each verse ends with the same little two-line refrain. Only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last I'm going to give us an opportunity to reflect by reading a few of those verses from that poem as you reflect back on the story and the actions of this woman as indeed you look down in your own hearts this morning and as you think about that resounding truth that we've got one precious God-given life and only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else will be forgotten. Two little lines I heard one day. Travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for christ will last Only one life Yes, only one soon will its fleeting hours be done Then in that day my lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat only one life will soon be past. only what 's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to god 's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be past. Only what 's done for Christ will last. Oh let my love. With fervor burn. And from the world. Now let me turn. Living for thee. And thee alone. Bringing thee pleasure. On thy throne. Only one life. will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ. Will last. Only one life. Yes only one. Now let me say. Thy will be done. And when at last. I'll hear the call. I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last.